burnout, depression, imposter syndrome, you name it, we talk about these topics in veterinary medicine every single day. But is this conversation somehow curtailing interest in the profession and potentially leading to shortages in veterinary professionals? This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this podcast is no stranger to talking about all of the mental health challenges that we as veterinary professionals face on the daily. But is all this conversation somehow potentially driving away the next generation of future veterinary professionals. This week, we're going to talk about that and what we can do to maybe reframe the conversation in a more positive fashion. But before we get into that conversation, as always, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And Becky, another week, another time to talk about mental health challenges in veterinary medicine. But you know, Becky, you and I have been talking lately like, you know, is this conversation that just continues to be talked about, is it somehow affecting people's interest in veterinary medicine in general? We know we have a shortage and we know that we need more professionals in our industry. But, I mean, <laughs> if we were standing on the outside listening to the crowd currently and for a while, right, would we have an interest in getting in? Is that passion and love for animals enough to sacrifice? And, you know, we see a lot of new graduates out there kind of saying, like, work-life balance is important to me. But what I hear so much of is that burnout, depression, you know, imposter syndrome, angry at clients. Like, the, the there's just a huge negative bubble around veterinary medicine conversations right now. And I'm not saying they're not justified. But it occurs to me, it, I wouldn't want to necessarily join this profession if I was looking at it from the outside right now. And how is that possibly affecting our long-term recruiting possibilities? Viewfinders, we want to first of all be very clear. We think that having these conversations about these tough topics is really important to our future success and sustainability, quite frankly. But we also know that if you're on the outside looking in, sometimes you can have a warped perspective. And I think that's really where we're trying to take this conversation today. It's like, okay, it's really important and healthy for us to have this conversation. But again, if you're sitting on the sidelines going, well, maybe I want to join in this game and suddenly go, whoa, that looks pretty yuck then are we somehow going to prevent a future generation from joining us? And so, Becky, I think the first thing I want to talk about is right now you're hearing a lot of conversations amongst uh, you know veterinary students, veterinary medical school students, veterinary technician school students, and these, these are worrying them, right? Right, right. And that's kind of what started the conversation for us today is, is these students are like, I'm starting, and I, you know, I've heard it more than once of, am I making the wrong decision? I'm feeling a little apprehensive because I'm working very hard to get this degree and to have this job. But my mentors, the people who have been in this profession, what I'm hearing from them is they're tired, they're over it, they're burnt out, and clients are driving them into the ground. And now I don't know if I am making the right decision. And that to me is actually really scary, right? Because in a time where I remember being the most excited, the most positive, um, and the most just, you know, full of joy when it came to the idea of doing this job. Um, 
they're not feeling that in school right now. And that kind of scares me. Yeah. And I have the same experience. You know, I've been, I, I'm very fortunate to be able to speak to students around the country, veterinary medical school students. And, you know, I have this funny lecture that sort of talks about something I call post veterinary school deceleration. And I talk about how like you start out when you want to go to vet school, when you get into vet school, you have the the peak of your enthusiasm for veterinary medicine. And then, you know, yeah. over time, it kind of declines. But I agree with you. I'm seeing that decline begin earlier, like second year of vet school these days. And look, guys, I was there, you were there, many of us were there. And we know that there are ebbs and flows to enthusiasm throughout veterinary school. But we're talking a very different, I think, more profound impact, right? I mean, you know, it's one thing to go, oh, my gosh, I've got this next big test or I've got this class that's going to be a challenge versus, oh, my gosh, have I made a terrible mistake? (laughs) Yeah, right. And that's, again, that scares me because... Are they coming out with the expectation of a, you know, at, for for technicians, you know, a five to seven year lifespan? And instead of feeling like they're going to be able to come out and positively contribute to the profession, um, are they maybe even like a little mentally over it? And and like, I don't know, because I, I, I haven't, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of students, but I don't know that I've specifically recognized new grads, you know, and said, like, how, how long have you been in the profession necessarily individually in conversations? But from what I see from a social media conversation standpoint is this is this is affecting our future. Now, we talk a lot about different cognitive biases on the podcast, and you guys know that I like to talk about one particular bias that sort of keeps us in the game, and it's called, you know, this optimism bias. And and I think that's at play here as well, Becky. I think that for the longest time, people are like, no, won't happen to me. This is optimism bias, meaning that something that is almost inevitable or is a high risk uh, action, that it's not going to happen to you, right? And you're basing that on your history uh, of it's hasn't happened to you before. Like that's what allows us to get in a car or strap ourselves into a a flying vehicle in the space. (laughs) So, right. So it has happened before. So optimism bias. And I think that for, for again, years, legions of veterinary professionals have said, it's going to get better. It's not going to happen to me. I won't be burnt out like that. But now I do believe Becky, that there's a deeper realization that wait, it's, gonna happen to me. Like I'm gonna burn out because everybody else is burning out. And I think that's where we have to be cautious with the conversation of painting it so broadly. I mean, literally these days, Becky, if you don't have a story where you have had some terrible catastrophe in your professional life, then it's like, you're not even like relevant. And I, I, I don't know that that's always true or, or healthy. Yeah, I don't think we celebrate the mundane, right? Right, we, right The right. thing that really hits us are the shockers. The things that really hit us are, the shockers, you know, this, yeah. the stories that just like punch you in the gut. So, you know, you do occasionally see these posts where it's like, um, you know, sometimes my job is all puppies and somebody gets to be with their face stuck in a basket of little baby puppies. And like, there are so many amazing moments in our job that I think we do kind of overlook because... Um, they don't grab our emotions the same way because that's what we're in it for. So we don't necessarily, you know, we always get our heartstrings pulled when that one doggy you just really don't think is going to make it goes home. And like, it's like, oh man, that's, that one really sticks with you. But that's the only one that sticks with you. Like we need a lot more of that to stick with us. Um, you know, and I have a, I have a lecture, you know, that talks about compassion satisfaction and how we kind of flip that conversation from compassion fatigue to compassion satisfaction. But at the same time, it is important to talk about mental health. It is right, important right, right. to be relatable. So how can we 
how can we do both? How can we find that relatable conversation? And, and, And I will say this, you know, for me, and I think this is partially the problem is, is we're, you know, kind of just putting bubble gum on the hole here, right? Like, right. like there's still a lot of water leaking through. We don't get the mental health that we need, partially because insurance isn't offered for most of our professionals. Yeah. We don't have time, you know, um, there's a stigma. We don't actually think it's affecting us, yada, yada, a thousand reasons. And because of the fact that we don't get that space to practice mental health and to get the venting and to do it the the way we would go and take care of our bodies, um, we're kind of maybe seeping it out amongst ourselves with the people who can relate the most. I, I've even seen people having issues finding mental health providers that can relate to veterinary problems. Like it's like you really just don't get it because you haven't been in it. Yeah, yeah, so, so very true. And and so we know that a lot of you guys that listen to our podcast regularly are in school or even thinking about it still. And I want to be the first to say, hey, you know what? I kind of have always viewed veterinary profession as like the Pareto principle when it comes to quote unquote happiness and satisfaction. 80% of the time, it is awesome. It's yeah. amazing, challenging, just wonderful. And everything I dreamt it would be and more. And I have always accepted that 20% it's going to suck. It's going to be just, and that's okay, guys. Like that's okay. At least for me. And much like we talk about personally, I feel that much like we talk about, um, you know, self-care being intentional. I think happiness is intentional as well. And so I do think we have to make our own happiness in a sense, which is again, to really focus on the positivity. And as a student, again, you can, Come into this profession and make your own happiness. Um, find that unicorn clinic. Find the one that is positive. Be particular. Don't just settle. Uh, don't think that it has to be some kind of way because there are a lot of people out there and a lot of clinics out there doing it right. It might not be the one that's right next door to your house, but you you can absolutely find a place that makes you happy. And I think a lot of us in this profession, quote unquote, settle um, we get, we get told, oh, it's like this everywhere. So there's, you know, there's problem children everywhere. There's the queen bee everywhere. So you might as well just deal with it here. And I think, you know, we have to take some personal responsibility if we're feeling some kind of way to not just say, well, that's just how it is because of where I'm at or in my profession. And I'm just going to settle for that, but to take personal responsibility to find that the way to fix that for yourself. Yeah, and Becky, I like your point there, but I'll take it slightly in a different direction. And that is, there are problems everywhere. This is getting back to that 80-20 rule. Like, so 20% of it, yeah, you're going to have a diva. Yeah, you're going to have a boss or manager that's just insufferable at times, right? But you need to have a support system around you and you need to have your own ability, like Becky is saying, personal accountability, personal abilities to actually get through this. I mean, I kind of think of it as like, you know, when I'm doing endurance training, like if I'm on a long run or paddle or swim or whatever it is I'm doing, you know, I'm on the bike for hours, it's not fun. I'm not happy. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you guys. There's no joy there. But you know what I realize is it's fortifying me. Like it's getting me to the next place. Now, it's not 
unenjoyable. It's not, I mean, we, we always use the term suffering in training, and it's not really suffering, I mean, in the sense that, you know, I don't have hope or whatever. It's just something I tolerate. And so I, I think that when you look at life and you look at your workplace environment, understand that there are going to be the suck of it sometimes. And if you've got yourself a network of people that support and buoy you up during those times, then you're going to be just okay, right? Uh, and again, you've got to then say, what can I do to you know nourish my soul, myself? And so I, I guess, Becky, what I, what I hate is the expectation that it is 100% happiness all the time, because I think that's just unfair and unreasonable. I think what you can expect and should demand is to have a workplace that's generally optimistic and positive. And when it's not, people don't just fall apart and throw knives at each other, right? They actually say, okay, let's get through this together. And we know it sucks right now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's realistic expectations to say that, you yeah. know, it's not going to be a hundred percent of the time, but it certainly doesn't have to be the norm on the day to day and that the good times are the exception. And you know, a lot of it is, is that outlook of, is this a bad five minutes or is this a bad day or is this a bad life? You yes, know? And I think yes. sometimes we funnel ourselves down a little bit because we get tired. And again, that's okay. None of this is like, oh, it's bad to do. We are simply unpacking how this affects people coming into the industry and not necessarily that you have to change your conversation or stop talking about it, but how can we truly supplement or mentor those up and coming to understand that there that there is a better way. And, um, you know, those of you that are out there saying like, oh man, I'm at my unicorn clinic. I love my job. I'm not in the burnout suck. How can we get you guys um, to be the louder voices so we can hear you and the students can hear you. Right, exactly. And that's that balance that I think that, that Becky and I are trying to find with this conversation. Because again, as I said at the outset, this is a healthy conversation yeah. to keep having, you know. But at the same time, we don't want to turn off, you know, people that might be a wonderful veterinary professional at some time in their life. So Becky, let's kind of get back to that part of it, you know. So right now, let's face it, one of the biggest news stories around vet medicine is suicide, right? Right? And I can tell you, I have had more than one random email from a parent of a child who wants to be a vet, and they're like going, but Dr. Ward, I'm so worried about all this suicide, you know? So, Becky, how how is that, I mean, how can we reframe, I don't know if that's even the right term, but how can we somehow make better this tragic situation? Yeah, Number one, I think this is going to come from the inside. And I can understand why it's concerning because I think that we all in this profession have colleagues that we worry about and we worry about very much and and we feel are susceptible. And then unfortunately, we all see circumstances where we lose a colleague and everyone is completely blindsided. So obviously there's no answer. I think for me, if I had to write down answers off of the top of my head and from my heart, it would be for us to to not tolerate client abuse, to create healthy cultures within our clinic as much as we can, and to individually and personally educate ourselves on, you know, things like QPR training. Banfield has us uh, in in-house type training. Um, and to know signs, to start to be comfortable having conversations, and to start taking better care of each other because I think that's kind of where it starts 
and then it naturally quiets the conversation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and if you find I don't have an answer either, just like Becky, when I do get those sort of rando <laughs> questions from the internets, you know, I usually try to say things like, you know, look, uh, this is really more of a societal issue as opposed to just our profession. And, you know, I, I want us to make sure that we are taking mental health more seriously, more broadly throughout our culture, because I think that, you know, a lot of the things that Becky just talked about apply, whether you're in construction, human medicine, retail, I mean, you know, the same pressures are there. And in fact, you know, Becky, one of the things that we've seen uh, during the pandemic is the spike in like suicides amongst like uh, construction workers. Now they're, you know, again, they're also dealing with opioid crisis and a lot of other confounding factors, but you know, they've also been out of work or their work has been changed and now they're back in, you know, all time high demand. So, I mean, you know, we're not the only profession that certainly this is unique to. So again, I think that, you know, viewfinders, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts on it, but I just don't want us to be painted as like the suicide profession, you know, because we know, I mean, growing up as a kid, Becky, like, honestly, that's all I ever heard about dentists, right? You know, you just heard, yeah. oh my gosh, it's awful. And and I don't want us, I don't want us to be branded in the same way. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer, but it does concern me. Sure. And I think, again, the point is to fix that from the inside so that we aren't known as that profession, but not because we don't talk about it, but because it's not happening. And, and for our students and for our up and comings, I think, again, we need to help find our own, you know, ability to con to mentor and to be part of, because I guess what I'm thinking about is how beautiful the world looks through my niece's eyes because they're fresh and because they're discovering and because they get excited over literally everything and they believe in magic, right? And so I think that new grads and students believe in magic. And if we get to see our profession and ourselves through their eyes, we can find a lot of joy. We can remember what it feels like to be really excited about the things that feel so mundane today. Um, and we can remember what the joy in our profession really is. So I think we can be inspired by these students and we can be inspired by thinking back to how we felt when we came into the profession. And then, you know, just, I, I wanna just continue to encourage seeking out mental health. There's so many resources. I do wanna say, um, and this is a total plug, sorry, but BetterHelp has a free month for, for um, not one more vet and not one more vet support staff members. Um, so you can get a free month of therapy. But I do think that if you find yourself having these com conversations among your colleagues, please make sure you are also having them in a space where you can do something about those feelings and have people help you work through them. Yeah, and that just reminds me once again to plug shamelessly that if you don't work in a workplace where they're willing to pay for this stuff, we need to fix that because honestly, this is like the bare minimum. But look, that's an old saw. That's yeah. an old yeah. saw for me. You know, it's like I've always felt like if you employ people, you should probably give them insurance as well. But regardless, that's a and whole. Certainly, other... <laughs> don't ask for sick notes if you don't. Sorry, yeah, back on track. <laughs> we can definitely go there. Okay, so let's let's talk about some of the other negative impressions that that are being forwarded out there, and I think obviously low pay, Becky. I mean, that's Ooh, one of yeah. the issues that, you know, again, I get the random sort of phone calls and, and emails from people whose child wants to be a vet and they're like, you know, but I'm worried they won't be able to pay off their student debt or make a living. What do you think? Okay. So yeah, that's what you said right there is it. It's relative. So it's, they're not going to make enough money to X, Y, or Z this thing, right? Right. The truth of the matter is, is 
even at $15, so $15, $16, $17, it's not a living wage. The problem that I hear with it is not so much this is what I make, but that I could go to Starbucks and make the same. So again, I think it comes from I'm getting beat down and abused and I don't have good benefits and I don't have a good culture and I could do equal or the same for a much better, you know, like I always say, come home smelling like coffee. Hello. Right. But right. for, and, and then for veterinary students and the parents, like I'm, they're worried because the fact of the matter is, is vet school is ridiculously expensive. Yep. So they're absolutely right. They're not going to be able to afford their student loans. They're going to have to do something above and beyond or sacrifice to do that. So that is a very valid fear. Um, but it is relative to their passion, their desire, and a un, what I want to point out as an underlying problem. Because the fact that vet school is so ridiculously, exclusively expensive is part of the problem that leads to the overreaching umbrella of the problem we're talking about today. Yeah. And again, guys, I think we have to, to look at the numbers a little more deeply because they are inflated. There are private veterinary schools that really charge... Yeah. Just outrageous sums. I mean, I, I I don't know what better term to describe it is. Yeah. I, I don't get it, but I get yeah. it. But, you know, <laughs> but regardless. So I think we really need to parse down the numbers because, you know, for every student that I talk to that says, you know, I went to this other school, you know, not in the U.S. and I spent, you know, $300,000. I'm talking to people that go to, to University of Georgia and they're walking out with, you know, $60,000, $70,000 in debt. So, I mean, I think yeah. we've got to, you know, again, balance sort of what the real story is because when I get those concerned parents emails, you know, I, I talk to them about, hey, look, you know, it depends on where you go in school, how much money you spend, you know, are they being fiduciarily responsible? Those, those kind of elements, those are important. You're right. I mean, I think NC State is the least expensive in the country right now, and they're just like 9000 I want to say, a semester or a year, maybe, or whatever. But the, you're right. There's not a, an exorbitant amount of debt there. But I think part of the problem on top of that is loans for living expenses, loans sure, for, sure. you know, getting through those years. And again, I think that becomes that overreaching problem, right? That, like you said, you have to unpack it for these parents and say, well sure, they're going to come out of with a lot of debt if they don't have X, Y, or Z, but are they doing A, B, and C? So I guess like what I, I think about is these problems that we lay out as sounding very simple and bottom line and black and white are all very relative to situations. And I think that's what we don't get specific about. So then these blanket, you know, problems get put over our entire profession. Yeah. And the other thing too, about the inflation of the vet school degree, okay, is that so many students now, you know, they don't get in after three or four years and then they go do a master's, you know, and then they don't get after a master's. So they do an extra year. So suddenly you can see Becky, how that compounds very, sure. very quickly. Yeah. And, and so we are seeing some exciting programs like at Mississippi State and others that are doing some fast tracking, you know, and, and you know where I stand on this, Becky. I mean, I, I, I look, I love the fact that I was able to get, you know, a broader, more liberal arts type of background. But I also got in after three years back at a time when it didn't happen. And so when I look at programs like Mississippi State that are trying to do these uh, two year, you know, undergrad, then vet school, it makes a lot of sense to me because I know that a lot of people don't necessarily value, you know, taking a lot of philosophies and lit classes and all that stuff that I kind of loved. <laughs> but regardless, yeah. you know, I'm saying that that when you look at the the 
student debt, part of that also is, okay, you didn't get after three years or four years or five years. So now you're six years in before you even start vet school. It adds up. So uh, again, I, I, when I'm talking to these parents, I'm saying we've got to be very realistic about, you know, what, what is it, what are, what are you willing to do? I mean, you know, I just talked to a, I just talked to a veterinarian who's graduated with $320,000 in debt and she, she has a master's and a PhD, you know, and she's just now graduated. And, and, and sadly what's happened is she's just finished her, or is, is finishing her first year of work. And she's realized how underwater she is financially. And, you know, it's just, it, it was breaking my heart, but you, you get it guys. Viewfinders, I mean, there's a lot more to this issue, but I think that part of the narrative that's being transmitted to the world is, is what Becky and I've been saying is that being a vet tech or a vet, it costs a lot of money. And then you take all of these hits. And at the end of the day, especially if you're a vet tech, Becky, you're going, wait, nobody yells at people at Starbucks or very rarely do they yell, you know? I don't hear about like a, a burnout situation at Starbucks. Now, And look, I'm not here to condone going to work for Starbucks, but I think, Becky, that's part of what your profession in particular is facing. Yeah, it's just, it's so relative. And again, because we aren't, the majority of us, there are some private colleges that are a lot more expensive, just like we were talking about with vet school, but most of us don't have huge student loan debts from becoming technicians. And so therefore, we can ex walk away a little easier. We, we can say, well, I'm leaving the profession I love because, and I, I can't tell you how many times I see that, is I'm leaving the profession I love because, and they, and they go to something where they're going to make more money and be treated like more of a professional. And, uh, you know, I hear it so much, it makes me really sad, and it isn't that it's not true. And I, and I do think that there are great organizations that are changing the, the, the way that technicians are treated, paid, and regarded. And it is gonna be slow moving, but it is improving. Um, but I, I, it just, it makes me really sad to think that that is becoming the majority of what I hear and see. Um, and it makes me worry about my profession. And then when I see students say they're not so sure they're going in in the right space, it makes me worry even more. And again, in a time where we are incredibly shorthanded and super overwhelmed and resisting <laughs> telemedicine and resisting improving the laws and recognition and utilization of technicians, it sort of feels like an implosion. <laughs> like, I feel oh, a little like Yellowstone right now. <laughs> it does. I mean, and then when we hear our governmental or organi organized medicine, you know, when you look at AVMA and state boards, I mean, they, they are like, oh, yes, there's a shortage. Oh, yes, there's a mental health crisis. Oh, yes, there's this problem with suicide and student debt and so forth. And then at the same time, Becky, they do everything literally to curtail the advancement of the profession. You know, I mean, like, yeah. we're seeing rollbacks of telemedicine, right? I mean, we're yeah. seeing you know, increased scrutiny over what vet techs can do in the clinic, registered yep. vet techs in the clinics. I mean, it's like, guys, you know, I hear you, but it really sounds disingenuous. So we, we got to keep the pressure on. I mean, that's why, honestly, that's why we love talking to you guys every week, because this is kind of our little subtle nudge of the profession saying, we want to tilt you going this way, because we do feel like, you know, we look, Becky, I am super optimistic, hopeful. Uh, I know that we can solve these problems. It's just we need the collective will. And then we've got to focus our efforts. Were we supposed to be subtle? <laughs> yes, this is subtle, right? We're not marching in front of somebody's house or down at the courthouse. Or oh, shoot, I wasn't supposed to do that. Okay, okay. Well, you never saw me there.
That's right. But, you know, again, again the, the, the pay issue and the student debt, those are, you know, look, there's a lot you can't fix about it, but there's a lot you can. But more importantly, I don't want the word on the street to be it's not worth the investment. And I think that's really where we are. I also think that every story that leads with, you know, students, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt should be bracketed by, but a whole lot aren't. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. so I just I just want us to be cautious with that narrative as we move forward. And Becky, as we kind of wrap up today's, you know, conversation, around are we somehow, you know, preventing people from entering our profession or getting enthusiastic? I I can't stop, but, you know, talking, I I guess once again, we will revisit, you know, look, there just doesn't seem to be like this cohesion, the organized aspects of it aren't there. And and really, I'm talking about like things, whether it's going to be... title protection for vet techs, you know, whether it's uh, what vets can do, portability of licensure. So we don't have this this availability, you know, to, to have reciprocity with our licenses. You do, you know, that's part of the problem as well. It's just the, the organization itself seems a little dated and behind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, here in North Carolina, we wrote it in what, like 1925 or something. And, and I think, you know, we open it up every 25 years or some craziness we we're way behind guys and you guys know we're way behind and we're working to change that the wheels of change do turn very slowly and our profession is full of very very proud people who have done a lot of hard work and um and are proud of that and are worried about decreasing standards and you know i'm not saying i don't understand that there are multiple sides to this conversation and to the fact that we really do need to make change but sometimes I worry if it leans more toward pride than it does the the betterment yeah, of the profession. And I really, really, truly do believe that you excited students out there are going to make change. And so um, I do believe you are willing to be involved and excited to be involved. And I think the best things really are coming. And I want, you know, our burnt out friends and, and colleagues out there to, to hang on if they can, to find you know, support where they can and in the right places so that they really can like revisit that passion. Because if our our colleagues were as passionate as they are burnt out, we might be able to make more change and more noise. Wow, that is so well said. If they were as passionate as our burned out, <laughs> then we'd be way ahead. And, and you know, one thing too, just, just as we leave today's conversation, Becky, the reason that this, us being behind the times and being perceived by the general public as sort of slow to change and resistant to change and not having their act together, what it actually is leading to is for outside forces to begin taking more more ownership of the profession. I mean, you know, yeah. when when these big investment firms are moving forward, often they omit the vet voice. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast multiple times. I've shared my own personal experiences with being sort of excluded or marginalized in our influence. And, and again, I think it's just one of those things because I've sat in these rooms with investors and with CEOs of, of large corporations. And, you know, they kind of say, yeah, it's just, you know, the, the vet's just too hard to, you know, they don't seem interested. It's just a, a pain in the butt to work with. We'll work around them. And that's just not how I want us to be a little more approachable and inviting. And yet, unfortunately, the flip side of that coin is veterinary technicians are being taken care of better than ever before and finding that by working through people who are looking through the eyes of business instead of like veterinarians who run their business and they aren't taking care of their employees, even if they are saying they want to and they just can't afford it, roll back a few episodes, you know how I feel about that. 
we are seeing more job satisfaction when these business individuals are running our practices. And I think we need to think about that. Totally agree. A lot of lessons to be learned. Well, viewfinders, we just want to have this conversation with you guys today because we think it's worth having. We also would like to hear what you have to say about these issues and topics. Do you think somehow that the stories and narratives and messages about the vet profession, are they somehow influencing people from entering it? We'd really like to hear what you have to say. Yep, you know where to find us after all this time, I hope you do. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder, on Twitter, the Twitter, the Twitter <laughs> at Vet Viewfinder. You guys can shoot us email as well, veterinaryviewfinder at gmail.com. But what we really, really ask that you do is take just a quick second to leave us five stars and a couple kind words. Uh, wherever you listen and subscribe, it really does help us out a lot. It does. So again, thanks for your loyal listening. We're coming up on, what is it, almost five years Four now? million episodes? <laughs> Something like that. You guys, enjoy the rest of this day. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.